reading biographies. I love reading stories about people who came before me. I find inspiration in those stories. I love reading about the father of modern missions, William Carey, who spent 41 years laboring in India for the sake of the Gospel and never took a furlough, never came home. Continuous labor. I love reading about the manly leadership of President Theodore Roosevelt. I love reading about the Christ-exalting ministry of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. I love reading about these people, and I also love reading about their failures. How they responded to their failures. How the Lord brought those, of, those who are Christians through those failures. And a huge part of the appeal to me is that a story well told is in some sense a universal story. When you read the story about the life of another person, it enables you to see your own lives a little bit better. To understand your lives as you see how people who came before you wrestled with some of the same conflicts, endured some of the same tragedies, experienced some of the same patterns and themes. And it's an amazing thing how we're all so different and yet we're all so similar at the same time. Well, the story of Abraham should be of particular interest to those who are in Christ Jesus. Not only is the story of Abraham a fascinating story, and it is. In fact, you probably won't find many stories more fascinating than the story of this man, this idolatrous moon worshiper who was called out of his own land and his own family to follow the Lord in a life of faith. The New Testament also presents Abraham as the man of faith. In some sense, the preeminent man of faith. The one who had faith before we had faith. The one who struggled to live by faith. Who struggled to walk by faith in the promises of God that are ultimately fulfilled in Christ Jesus. In the midst of circumstances that didn't always help him in his faith. What story would have more relevance for you and I? We look at this story of this man that's being unfolded in the book of Genesis. The story that from the beginning is so full of tension as God makes promises to him. You are going to be blessed. You are going to become a great nation. And not only are you going to become a great nation, but I am going to give you land. And not only are you going to become a great nation, and not only am I going to give you land, but you are going to bless all the nations. Through you, I am going to bless the nations. And so the Lord makes these promises to him, and immediately in the story, the tension begins to come. How in the world is Abraham going to be the father of a nation if his wife is barren, doesn't make any sense. He's old. His wife is getting old. She's barren. She hasn't been able to have a child yet. How is that going to change? And not only that, but the Lord takes him and shows him the land and says, look, Abraham, Abram at this point, there is the land that I'm going to give you. And immediately there's a famine in the land. Abram can't even live off the land. Immediately, Abram has to leave and seek refuge in the godless land of Egypt. This is a story where Abram is seeking, fighting to trust the Lord even as his eyes see things that look completely different than what the Lord has promised. He looks out and it doesn't appear like any of these promises are going to happen, and yet the Lord has made these promises. Does that sound familiar? A lot has changed since then, but that aspect of the story has not changed. We live on this side of the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We live on this side of the fulfillment of the promises, but it has not yet been consummated. 
As the Apostle Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians, we are still having to walk not by sight, but by faith. And it's not always easy. As we hear Jesus, our King, come and say, the kingdom of God is at hand. And we we read from the Apostles' pen that, that our King Jesus has been resurrected. He is ascended and He is right now reigning at the right hand of the Father. He is on His throne And yet we look out at the turmoil of of an election year and begin to doubt. Sure doesn't seem like Jesus is on His throne. And so this story of Abram is a story that ought to help us quite a bit. For me, for you, Just as it was for Abraham, the question is, will I daily choose to live in light of God and His promises by faith instead of living solely by what I see in front of my face? It's a daily decision. That's not one defining moment. You don't make that moment at the beginning of your journey and never have to make that decision again. That's the type of decision that you have to make each and every day. In fact, you have to make that decision several times each and every day. That's the type of decision that comes again and again and again and again. As you deal with one another, as you deal with, with raising your children, as you deal with reading your newspaper, as you deal with difficult people where you work, will you live by faith or will you live by sight? That's such an important question. And that is what Abraham's story helps us to see. It helps us define that. We're going to walk through this whole story together. And then the way we're going to do it is a little bit different tonight. And then we're going to go back and we're going to ask three questions of the story that I think are defining questions that will help us to, to, to make that call on whether we're living by faith or by sight. Look with me at verse 1. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev. I want to remind you why he's coming out of Egypt. If you'll remember where we left Abram, it wasn't a very good place. Abram had gone into Egypt because there was a famine in the land, and he had gone into Egypt with his wife Sarai. And Abram went into Egypt realizing that he was at the mercy of a very powerful ruler, the Pharaoh. In fact, probably the most powerful ruler in the land. And he was completely at his mercy. And Abram knew that his wife was attractive. And he knew that was going to be a problem, that the Pharaoh was probably going to want something in return for feeding him and and housing him and taking care of him. And so Abram decided that he was going to lie. That he was going to lie, in fact, to the degree that he put his wife at risk. In order to protect himself, he lied to the Pharaoh saying that Sarai was not his wife, but was his sister. The consequence of that decision was very bad. For if she was Abram's sister, then Pharaoh thought, she can be mine. And he took her into his own house. Well, God preserved him and preserved Sarai all the way through. In fact, God sent plagues to redeem her. And they come out of Egypt, even in spite of his sin, even in spite of his selfishness, they come out of this situation Blessed. God's showing mercy to them. They come out looking better even than when they came in. Look at verse 2. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. He comes out with wealth from the land of Egypt. I, I, we, we looked, the last time we looked at this story in, in Genesis chapter 12 and, and saw how this was uh, looking forward to the exodus. As the land of the people of Israel were going to go into Egypt under similar circumstances and be taken into bondage in the land, and yet God was going to act with great plagues to redeem them, and they come out with wealth from the land of Egypt. Well, here's Abram. God has acted. God has acted to redeem him by grace alone. He certainly did not deserve this redemption. But God had made a promise to him. God had chosen him. And God is always faithful to his promise. 
And so they come out of Egypt very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. Verse 3. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. Remember when the Lord had first made the promise to Abram, this was the very place where Abram had come. If you look back at chapter 12, verse 8, from there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Abram had been here before. Abram is returning to the land. He is returning back to where he had been. And notice that what he does, he calls upon the name of the Lord. He seeks the Lord. He worships the Lord. It's very significant. And now Lot enters the story. Lot is the son of Abram's brother. Lot would be Abram's nephew. Verse 5, And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling together. In the land. And so here's Abram and Sarai, and they have all of this cattle and all of this livestock, and they're in this land. And here is Abram's nephew Lot, and they're in the same predicament. Lot's wealthy as well, and so they're trying to figure out how in the world can both of us stay together? This land will not support both of us. And so there's even strife, there's contention, there's conflict between Abram's men and Lot's men. That's my patch of grass can imagine the types of conflict going on. So they've got to come up with a solution. Verse 8. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. We're not going to have a conflict over this. We're, we're not going to let this get ugly. Let's come up with a solution. I am your uncle. You are my nephew. We're going to work this out. Continues, verse 9, Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right, or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. Abram defers to Lot. He's older. He has rights from God to this very land, and yet, he defers. He says, you know, you, you pick which way you want to go. If you go that way, I'll go this way. If you go this way, I'll go that way. It'll all be okay. And Lot, verse 10, lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. There's a there's a little parenthesis there letting us know that, that there's more to this story coming. But Lot looks out and he says, this is a no-brainer. Look at this land. If I go this way, it looks like the garden of the Lord. It looks like Eden. It looks like paradise. It looks like Egypt, which was another fertile land in the Nile River Basin. And so he, it's a no-brainer to him. Of course, I'm going to go this way. So Lot, verse 11, chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. He takes the best land, and they go their separate ways. Verse 12, Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. So Lot is going in a particular direction, but the particular direction he's going, there's been people before him who have noticed the value of this land, who have settled there, and there's already people, there's already cities built. That's going to be significant later on. And we get the significance of that again, a little hint in verse 13. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Lot is going in that direction. 
Verse 14, the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. He says, look, Abram, Lot's gone. I want you to look even in the direction that Lot went. And I don't want you to only look in the direction that Lot went. I want you to look in all the other three directions because, here's the promise reiterated, for all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. This is that promise. He's already made it. We're going to keep going through Genesis and we're going to keep seeing that God has an agenda not to let Abram forget that he's made this promise. And so he reiterates it here. He's going to give this land, all the land that he sees to his offspring, not just for a time, not just in this life, but forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. The dust being the, the third unit that God uses to compare the offspring of, of Abraham in this narrative. He, he also uses sand. He also uses stars. The point is very clear. You are going to have a lot of offspring. So that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Abram, you're still going to be blessed. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. It started with him worshiping at an altar to the Lord, and this narrative, this particular story, ends with him building an altar to the Lord so that he can worship. And that's what we have in Genesis chapter 13. And I want you to notice just a few things. Number one, I want you to notice that there's progress for Abram, he is on a journey of faith. He has made terrible mistakes. In fact, we just got done with an episode of him not living by faith at all. But it seems in this account that things are looking better. You have Abram worshiping in an altar to the Lord. You have Abram making a very selfless decision to allow his nephew to go to the best place. And then you have him ending by being reminded from God of the promises that even though he had failed, God had not removed those promises from him. And we have him worshiping again. I also want you to notice that the text seems to be very clearly drawing a contrast between Lot and Abram. They're not thinking at the same level. They're not making their decisions based on the same criteria. Lot goes one direction. Abram goes in the other direction. I believe the text is showing us that Lot is walking by sight in this episode. While Abram is walking by faith. So I want us to look back at this text now as we keep going. And I want us to ask three questions that I think will help us to understand the difference between walking by faith and walking by sight. And the way these two men answer those questions in this episode. Here's the first question. Who comes first? Who comes first? I remind you of the conflict in verses 5-7. through seven. There's not enough land for both of us. And so there's some arguing going on. There's some bickering going on. And they get to a solution. And I want you to see how the problem is solved. Abram says to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and mine, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you. And he, get, he defers to Lot. And Lot makes his decision based solely on one criteria. text tells us, He lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. And as soon as he saw that, his decision was made. May I ask you, what's his criteria? How is Lot reasoning through this decision? Who's he prioritizing? Who's coming first? How does he make this call? Well, it's pretty obvious how he makes the call. 
He begins and he ends with one question. What is the best decision for me? How can I benefit the most out of this decision? And just to be honest with you, you and I can't give him too hard of a time because we've all been there. In fact, this is our default position. This is how we're born. This is our natural state, and it doesn't just zap away when we put our faith in Jesus Christ for the first time. We want to put ourselves first. You see this with children, I see it with mine. My children, when they were two, and to be honest with you, not even when they were two. Even more recently. They don't naturally, their natural disposition is not to say things like, I really want my brothers and sisters to have all my best toys. That's not the way they think. You know, there's one popsicle. We have five kids, and so there's never like a, a, a perfect number of anything in a box. It's not like there's five and ten and fifteen. They don't think that way. There's always odd numbers of everything, which is a good thing, because it makes my kids have to die to self. But there's one popsicle left, and... It's not like the first one that notices it says, Mom, Dad, can I give this popsicle to, to, to somebody else? That's not their natural disposition. Their natural disposition is to run into that freezer and be the first to ask us, can I have that popsicle? This is our state. This is how we arrive on the scene in Adam. Self comes first. We jockey for the best seat. We're eating dinner with a lot of people and we, we realize that there's only one role left. And you know, you kind of start thinking that that battle goes on in your heart where you're like, I really want it, but I don't think I should take it. What, you know, what do I, you've been there, you know, I, I know the Christ-like thing to do, but I really want to eat it. That battle, that tension. I want to be first in line. I want to be first. I want to be recognized. I want to, I want to be before them. This is how we arrive on the scene. But I want you to notice the difference in Abram. In this story, it's really quite remarkable because we just got finished seeing him put himself first at the expense of his wife. But he's not doing that here. Things are different. Let there be no strife between you and me, between your husband and mine, for we are kinsmen. You make the decision. If you go that way, I'll go this way. Why is Abram different? That's the question. Why is he different? And I want us to eliminate one thing right off the bat. Eliminate the possibility that Abram is different because of his inherent righteousness. We've already seen it. That's not the case. Abram's a sinner. When God ransomed him, he didn't look at him and decide to ransom him and redeem him and call him out because of his inherent righteousness. He was from a tribe of people who worshipped the moon. He was an idolater. God decided to love him. And that is what marked him out. And so, and so we can eliminate that possibility. We know that he has just gotten finished doing something very self-protecting and selfish and shameful at the expense of his own wife. But the difference is that in this text, in verse 13, there is a clear sign that Abram is prioritizing the Lord. He is putting the Lord first. He is worshiping the Lord. He has returned to the very altar that he built before he went to Egypt. And he is being reminded of the promise that God had made him. And he is bowing down in humility as he is exalting the Lord. He is putting that relationship before every other relationship. He is being reminded that he is in a relationship with the God who created everything and a God who also loves him and a God who has promised him everything. And that's his priority. And when Abram is focused on God, when that relationship takes 
preeminence above every other relationship, He is liberated to serve other people. He doesn't have to compete with Lot and try to jockey for the best land because He is resting in the Lord who has made wonderful promises to Him. It's an amazing thing that's taken place. This is how it works. You know, if I told one of my children, you know, if I've, I've got five, and if I told one of them, I said, hey, we're about to go inside the house, and your mother has been cooking food, but she didn't cook enough food for you, because I want you to know that I've got a whole day planned for you and me, and, and I'm going to be with you, we're going to spend time together, and we're going to have a lot of fun, I'm going to take you to your favorite place to eat. And after that, we're going to go do your favorite thing, whatever it may be. And then I'm going to bring you home. But, but you're not going to get anything right now. So just know that as we go in, I want you to serve your brothers and sisters and be happy for what they're getting. But you're, you're not going to get anything. Don't you know that would change everything? We walk in the house and let's say it's one of my daughters. They walk in with the complete understanding in their mind that I have promised my presence to them and that I have made other promises to them so that they can defer their enjoyment in the immediate and allow their siblings to be blessed knowing that they have been promised by me, their father, something greater in the long run. And so their hope, their, their hearts are set on the greater promise which liberates them not to seek to be selfish and to take in the immediate. You see how that works. Abram is able to defer immediate satisfaction of getting the best land because he's already received the best land by promise from God. He's in a covenant. He's about to be in a covenant relationship with the Lord. He is in a relationship with the Lord at this moment. He's able to serve a lot because he knows that he has someone infinitely better. He has made his relationship with the Lord his number one priority. This has huge practical ramifications for us. I don't know about you, but one of the things that I get most fed up with with myself is selfishness. Just being selfish. You, you can almost trace that to every sin you ever commit. You lose your temper with one of your children. It's selfishness. You get into conflict, argument with, with your wife. That's selfishness. You, know, you, you grow discontent in your heart with whatever situation you're in the midst of. It's selfishness. How do you fight selfishness? How do you stop being selfish? This is an amazing passage. Helping us think through that. Because what this passage is showing us is that the solution does not lie merely in some strategy, some lifestyle change, some type of behavior modification. You know, if I just start doing this instead of this, and if I just try to make myself react this way instead of that way, that's going to fix everything. No, what this passage is showing us is that the way to be selfless is to work on your horizontal relationship with the Lord, and that is going to change and revolutionize your vertical, I got that backwards. You work on your vertical relationship with the Lord and that is going to revolutionize your horizontal relationships with other people. It all starts vertically. The freedom to truly love and serve others comes from the daily recognition that God is enough. God is valuable. Infinitely valuable. And if you have Him, you have the one treasure in all the earth that enables you and frees you to, to look past any earthly treasure. You have the greatest treasure that you would go and sell everything you own to get that treasure. You're able to serve others. And I think there's so much wisdom in the way the Lord has revealed Himself. Even to the point where you have Jesus being quizzed on which one is the greatest commandment. Have you ever noticed the order? 
the order is a repetition of the way God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses. But notice who's first. Number one, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. That is your first priority. And the reason why that is the first commandment given is because the second greatest commandment rests on that first. You will not love others as yourself if you do not love the Lord with all of your mind and heart and soul and strength. You just won't. Because when you love Him with everything you have, your heart is overflowing with love and blessing in His presence. What more do you need? You are now liberated to love everybody else because you don't view them as means to the end of greater enjoyment. You're already full. It's so practical. It's so practical because it starts with Abram worshiping. I hope you don't think that Worship is only done on Sunday morning, even though this is the climactic moment of worship with the body of Christ. But worship is something that we do every day. That never stops. So do you come before the Lord in worship in a way that you're filled with Him? Because it will revolutionize your relationships with other people. Think about marriage. About the way this works in marriage. You know, so, so many of marital conflict comes because we're looking at our spouse as the key to our joy and our happiness. You know, I, I married you and I want you to make me happy. And you're not making me happy. You're disappointing me. And, and in fact, that's always going to be the conclusion because that's an impossible demand. You can't rely on another sinner to make you happy. It's just not going to happen. Your, your wife, your husband is not going to make you happy. They're going to disappoint you. There's no way they can't. And as long as you view them as the key to your happiness, you will never be able to selflessly serve them because you view them as an object, as a means to the greater end of happiness. You're useful to me as long as you make me happy. And so I can't serve you. Because I'm here selfishly looking for what you can give me. But what if God is your delight? What if God is your treasure? What if you look to Him alone for that fulfillment? Because He alone can provide it. Then all of a sudden you are liberated to love and to serve your spouse. Just as Abram was liberated to serve his nephew. Love the great hymn. More love to Thee, O Christ. Once earthly joy I craved, sought peace and rest. Now Thee alone I seek. Give what is best. This all my prayers shall be. More love, O Christ, to Thee. The recognition that I used to be in a position where I sought, craved peace and rest from the world. And now, because of Christ, because of Your mercy, I seek You, I seek You alone, and I am liberated to say, just give me what You think's best because You've already given me infinitely more than I deserve. That's the first question. Who comes first? Are you walking by faith or are you walking by sight? Here's the, here's the second question. What impresses you? What impresses you? Now, if, if you've been following along in Genesis, or if you're even familiar at all, you'll know that there's been a problem with eyes throughout the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 3, when the serpent tempts Eve, and she gives in to the temptation as he, he tries to get her to be drawn to the forbidden tree that God had told her she must not eat of. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, it tells us, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and a delight to the eyes, she sinned at that point, right? She's not living by faith in what God had told her. What had God told her? That you should not eat of that tree because in the moment that you do, you will die. That's not good for you. God's Word is invisible, but it's His Word. He had given it to her. And she's no longer trusting in that Word. She is now 
trusting in her own vision. I know you told me that, but my eyes see a different story. My eyes see goodness here. And so she pursues it. And then in Genesis chapter 11, if you remember when the people built the Tower of Babel, what was it about? Why were they doing that? They wanted to build this big and impressive tower as a way to reach the heavens, as a way to build themselves up to God. And it says also that they wanted to make a name for themselves. They were appealing to the visionary impressiveness of the structure. People are going to come from this day forward and they're going to see this with their eyes and they're going to say, what an amazing generation. We've made a name for ourselves. Look at the memorial. Notice how Lot, the sole criteria that Lot is using to make this decision. Verse 10, And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw. And it even takes you back to the garden to remind you To remind you of the way Eve made her decision. He saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord. Like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. And we know this isn't a good thing because immediately we have mention of Sodom and Gomorrah. He's making decisions in a way that is going to lead him to self-destruction. He's making decisions based on one criteria. What does it look like to my natural eyes? What do my eyes see? So again, why isn't Abram thinking in the same way? I want you to turn with me to to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, look with me at verses 13 through 16. This is in the context of of the writer of Hebrews telling us the story of Abraham in the book of Hebrews. And there's this parenthetical statement. He's been talking about Abraham and he's going to talk about Abraham again. But in the middle of that, he makes a general statement. Kind of letting us in on the difference between these people who live by faith and people who don't. Verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. They had not received what God had promised, they had seen them, but I want you to understand, he's talking about a different kind of vision. They had seen them by faith. God had made promises. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. They were looking for something better. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. Understand what's happening. The people who live by faith are more impressed with what God has promised to give them than with anything this world could provide for them. There there is a single-minded direction of their sight and their eyes of faith is leading them toward the kingdom, toward a better city, an eternal home. That's what impresses them. So so much so that that other people are going to look at them and think, that was a stupid decision. that's, That's kind of the inevitable part of living by faith. If you follow Jesus, you are going to be led to make decisions that people around you think are completely stupid. It's just the way it is. I'll never forget when Nikki and I began telling people outside of the church that we were going to adopt. We had just had three children in a span of about three years. 
But we wanted to do it. We wanted to do it for a lot of reasons. We wanted to do it because our hearts were burdened from the adoption culture here at Ashland and sitting under the Word and being convicted about it again and again and again. Connecting the, 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 the fact that we say we're pro-life, but what are we going to do about it? And at the time, I was working at UPS and I didn't know how much longer I was going to be working there and I knew that they reimbursed money and I was like, this is a great time. It's a great time. But I remember people thinking, are you guys crazy? And it didn't, it didn't make sense. Even, even family members of mine. You go to home to Alabama and what in the world are you guys thinking? But it made sense to us. Because we didn't live and we weren't impressed by the same things that a lot of other people are impressed by. We believe that God had called us to do this. And I can remember lots of key moments in my life like that. I remember back in 2006, right after Nikki and I got married. I was working three jobs, and I was a full-time seminary student, and we were living from paycheck to paycheck. And I'll never forget a church from Alabama calling me and offering me a job that was going to pay me $50,000 a year. And at that moment, at that time, that was like, whoa. Never seen that much money. And I remember wrestling with that because there were, there were people saying, you're an idiot if you don't do that. You get up at 3 a.m. and you punch a clock at UPS. You're not making anything right now. I remember sitting down with the people who knew me the most and getting people telling me, listen, that looks enticing, but you've got to consider, are you ready for that? Are you ready for that? They didn't tell me what to do, but they gave me a different set of priorities to think by. I didn't make that decision. I didn't go. I didn't take it. I stayed. Six months later, that church fell apart. And everybody on staff got fired. I look back on those kind of decisions where, you know, if if I'm living by sight, I would have definitely have chosen the money. Trust me. But by the grace of God, He put people in my life to show me that there was another way to make that decision. Imagine what Abram's father, Terah, would have said if he were alive right here. Probably something like this. Abram, are you an idiot? Why would you give him the best land? How are you going to make a living for yourself? How are you going to do this? doesn't make any sense. Talk about your relationship with God. Are you in some kind of cult? Abram made that decision because he was walking by faith. I think that maybe one of the, one of the hardest things for us as Christians living by faith, particularly as us as parents living by faith, is continuing to live by faith when it comes to our children. This is where the rubber meets the road. Now, I've heard a lot of Christian parents in my life who love missions and give money to missions and pray for missions and volunteer for missions, but when they hear that their child is wanting to go to the mission field, the whole game changes. Not my child, not my baby. I've been around Christian parents who hear that their newly married daughter is about to have a baby. And even though they would affirm everything that the Bible says about children being a blessing from the Lord and that one of the purposes of marriage is is to, to multiply and to have children, not my baby. You're too young. You don't have enough money yet. Or you're pregnant again? You know, we don't get to choose to revert back to living by sight when it's convenient for us. As we apply the promises of God to our own lives, we have to apply those same promises to our children's lives who are also living by faith. It's vital to see this. It's vital to see also this, that Lot's way of viewing the world is the dominant way of viewing the world 
amongst virtually everybody around you. You're going to be in the minority. You're going to be one of the only ones listening for the voice of God to tell you and direct you and guide you and how you're going to make your decisions. Most of your unbelieving friends and neighbors aren't even looking for fulfillment outside of what they see with their eyes. Perfectly content with the amusements and allurements of life under the sun. But the greatest tragedy is if we are living by the same values. We have to be the one showing them, shouting to them, there is more than life under the sun. This is not enough. Why are you settling for these trivial amusements when the Lord has has offered you salvation, eternal life, a relationship with Him in Christ? Let me show you what that kind of life looks like. That's our role. That's why God has left us here in these days. But the third question I want us to ask this text is this. What are your goals? What are your goals? I want you to contrast where they land because that's what the text is doing. Lot goes to the land that seems the best from what his eyes can see and he settles in the cities of the valley and moves his tent as far as Sodom. Verse 12 says, and you hear Sodom and you automatically probably begin thinking about what's going to happen next. It's not good. I'll save it for when we get to that part. But verse 13 already tells us, Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The outcome of putting self first and living by what impresses his natural eyes is that it lands him in the goal and the end result of wickedness. He, he ends up with the people who also live by that virtue, by that ethic. Now, Abram in this passage, in this story, has not done these things. Abram is putting the Lord first. He is worshiping the Lord. He is focused on the promise. He is impressed by what God has promised him. And look where he lands. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, verse 14, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring Forever, And God reminds him of the promise. And as a result of Abram looking and seeing what the Lord has given him, what does he do? He bows down and worships him. He ends this episode the way he began it. This is bookended by Abram bowing down in worship to the Lord. And God continually reiterating his promises to him. You will land, you will, your life will result depending on where your priorities are. You know, we're, we're all headed in a direction. For those of us who are living by faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us that we are on, in a process By the hand of a sovereign God, we we are in a process of sanctification in which God is conforming us into the image of His Son. How does He do that? He does that as we week after week gather with the church, come before His Word and it's applied to our hearts. He does that as we get in, in the trenches with people and learn how to love them even though they're not like us like Jesus did. We're in this process because we're living by faith. But the other side of that is that if we're living by sight, it's not like we're static there. We're also going in a direction, but we're going in the opposite direction. If you're living by sight, you are going to be conformed into whatever you're focusing on. The Bible says we are being conformed into the world. And we end up in the same place. And this is where it gets real. My fear sometimes as I think about Christians living in this world is that sometimes we look at unbelievers 
And we secretly think that they have the best deal. I think that's a temptation. Because what we see with our eyes seems so powerful and it seems so good and the temptation's right there in front of your face and you're out there in the world and their lives seem so trouble-free and they're able to pursue money and wealth and whatever they want to pursue and, 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 and they can do whatever they want with their time and it seems like they have freedom. And we're tempted to believe that we, as people of faith, are the ones settling. Like, we're settling for second best. Like, I'm going to put my life on hold right now because I'm just hoping that eternity is a lot better. But that's not at all. That's not at all what the Bible says is the Christian life. The Bible says... That's not reality. You are not settling for second best when you follow Jesus by faith. You have access to the living water. You have access in Christ. You now have the bread of life. You have the greatest treasure. You have freedom. Not them. That's pseudo-freedom. They're enslaved to their desires and yet you have a Savior who has set you free by the blood of His cross. And this life, this journey that He calls you on is so much better than any alternative. Because it doesn't depend at all on your circumstances. You can have full joy in Christ because you have Christ whether you're poor or whether you're rich. Whether you're going through suffering or whether you feel like everything's right in your life circumstantially. The reality of His love for His people does not change. It's not based on circumstances. And not only that, it's 100% free. It's completely by grace. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. In fact, you look like Abram of chapter 12, probably like me, just as much as you do Abram like chapter 13. But you're in process. And by the grace of God, He's moving you, He's inching you toward the image of Christ. And all of that is free. By grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And not only that, But nothing can ever take it from you. Because your Savior, the one you're living for, has been resurrected from the dead. And He is reigning and He will reign forever. Who's settling now? Not us. Let's pray.